you would take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 3. 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verses 13 through 17 will be our text for this morning's message. Several have asked uh, about our returning to the Proverbs series in the new year. We will do that in due time, but I wanted to sort of take a few weeks to set a new year's agenda before resuming our Proverbs series. This is my favorite time of the year. The year is now behind us. There's a brand new year before us full of opportunity and potential. You are, if like me, setting goals and resolutions and game planning for the next year. I get excited about those kinds of things. In fact, I don't ever preach on this Sunday. Usually this is a Sunday that I take to visit one of the churches in our network, to visit one of our planning partners and try to be an encouragement to them where they are. There were various circumstances that factored into my being here this morning, but not the least of them were the fact that I am so excited about what God is doing here at Longview Point and what the next 12 months hold for us. I thought it best that we begin, for all intents and purposes, together here this morning with, uh, with me in, in the pulpit. I'm excited about what is ahead. I am a checklist guy. I begin every day with a checklist of things that need to be done that I hope to accomplish within the course of that day. And I take a strange delight in marking items off of that list. And I will only sleep well at the end of a day when all of the items on the day's list have been crossed off. I'm weird that way. It gives me a, a sense of fulfillment and satisfaction and accomplishment to see these things done. I am a goal setter in every part of my life. I have personal goals in my financial life, in my health and fitness life, in my diet and well-being life. I have goals in terms of my marriage and my family, goals in ministry, goals in preaching, goals in academics. I am a goal-oriented person. And I suspect that there are at least a few like me out there this morning, and maybe many more, who given the time of the year are establishing for themselves resolutions, making new commitments for a new year, establishing new patterns of behavior and discipline that you hope to help to improve yourself and those around you and the circumstances of your life in 2024. I, I suspect that your goals, your plans, your resolutions are not unlike mine, and I hope that among them is a goal, plan, the discipline of committing yourself uh, more faithfully to the reading and the study of God's Word. And so for the next couple of Sundays, I want to point your attention toward the discipline of Bible intake. It's a two-part message. I want to tell you the what and the why in our time together this morning. And then for those who so often respond, well, Pastor, I'm reading the Bible, but I'm just not understanding or comprehending. We'll talk more about the how in next week's message. But for this morning, the what and the why of Bible intake, 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse number 13. If you found your way there, join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's Word. This is what the Word of God says. Evil people and imposters will become worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you, 
You know that from childhood you have known the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. I, I love being your pastor. I love serving this church. I walked into the worship center from a, conversa- from a conversation with a member of our body about the joy it is to be a part of, of this fellowship. I love to come to work every day. I love to serve you. I, I love to enjoy the fellowship that we enjoy, not just on the Lord's Day, but various times throughout the week and months and and even the years, I love everything about my job as a pastor. But the thing that I delight to do the most is to study and to preach the Word of God. Even before I became a believer in the message of the gospel, before I was a Christian, my environment in some mysterious way trained me to have a certain degree of reverence for the Bible. I didn't grow up in a home where we read the Bible. The Bible was there, but it was more a fixture or an ornament than something that we oriented our lives around. Every member of the house was to have a Bible as though there was some kind of good luck charm encased in that holy book. We had one. We were, for the most part, unaware of what was in the book, but there were enough people, enough influence in our life from Christian folk that we came to have a regard for the Bible. On Sundays in my early childhood years, we would go to my grandma's house, my granny's house, who I would eventually come to live with. And grandma would always be freshly home from church, and she'd get in the kitchen and whip up something for us all to eat, welcoming the family, whether we'd been at church or not. And often we would get in her old car, and we would drive to the nursing home to see her father, my grandpa Estes. He was the kind of man who would wake the, the nursing, who would get the nursing staff to come in when he woke up in the morning and dress him in a suit and a tie, only to lay back down in the bed he would spend the majority of his day in. And I can remember us coming into his nursing home room, and he would have that big Bible, a Bible that's in my possession today, and he was reading and studying the Bible. You just begin to pick up that there's something unique, something special about this book, At about 15 or 16 years old, in a fit of despair, for some strange reason, and in some strange way, I was able to find a Bible in our apartment. And I remember opening the Bible and my eyes falling to a verse that addressed specifically the source of my despair in that moment. It was such a profound and moving thing that even in the haze of despair, I remember physically moving back from the book as though I had been assessed and addressed directly by this book in some strange and mysterious way. A few weeks later, I was riding along with a friend. We were up to no good and headed to do more, no good. We were committed. We were driven. We, we, we were both feet in to doing what was unrighteous on that particular day. Now, I remember the conversation. He, he said, you know, the other night, and what he described in terms somewhat different from this, 
in a fit of despair, I grabbed a Bible and I just opened it and my eyes fell to a verse that specifically addressed the source of my despair. I shared my own experience with opening a Bible the same way. By the way, I'm not suggesting that as a good method for Bible study. Just let it fall open and start reading wherever it falls open. Sometimes God does move accommodating our stupidity to affect our lives unchangeably. We sort of waded through the awkwardness of that conversation. We both understood that if what we had discerned about this experience was right, we had to acknowledge that what we were headed to do was altogether unrighteous. So we suppressed the experience and persisted in our ungodliness. When I heard the message of the gospel, when I heard the story of the gospel that saved me from my sin, I remember believing that message, but feeling especially validated as I was able to find the substance of the preacher's sermon in the Bible I was holding in my hands. It was almost as though I was almost convinced until I could see it in the book. And that was enough to push me over the edge in conviction and surrender. I, I, I didn't graduate high school. I, I quit my junior year. Uh, I, I sometimes refer to myself as a dropout, although it was not as much a dropping out as it was an invitation to leave and to not come back. But in any event, I did not complete my high school experience. I can't remember reading a single book in all my years at Starkville High School. I can remember being assigned various Shakespearean works and thinking, this is absolutely ridiculous. No one speaks in these and thous and yees and various other things. This is insanity. There are far more practical things to do. And after all, there are girls to chase and parties to attend. And then God saved me. And I just remember being overwhelmed with this want to know everything that I could know about this book that had introduced me to the God of heaven and his only son who bled and died in my place. I often tell the story of going to a Lifeway bookstore. My grandma had given me a copy of a New King James Version study Bible. And I bought a five-volume set of Matthew Henry's commentary on the Bible. If you know Matthew Henry's commentary, that is funny. It's written in microscopic typeset. It's five full volumes. And it's old Shakespearean English with all the these and the thous and the yees that I so disdained in those English lit assignments. And I devoured those five volumes to know all that I could know about the Word of God and eventually destroyed that study Bible to know all that I could know about the God of the Bible and His Son, Jesus Christ. It has been the focus of my life for now 20 years to know everything I could know about this book. When God saved me, I didn't know anything about the Bible. What your preschool children know about the Bible exceeds my understanding at the moment of my conversion. I remember sitting in about the second or third Sunday after coming to faith in Christ, the preacher announced that he was preaching from the book of Hebrews. And I spent the first 15 minutes of the sermon trying to find Hebrews in the Old Testament. 
I still contend it sounds like an Old Testament book. But for those who may not know, it is very much in the New Testament. When I tell you I knew nothing about the Bible, I mean to tell you I knew nothing about the Bible. And just began to read page after page after page. Every day, a new discovery of God's word, a new discovery of truth, a new command for my life, a new promise to lay hold of. It was so invigorating, so exciting to discover more of God with every day that passed. I tell the story sometimes and people think it's a joke, but it's real. In Leviticus chapter 11, God says, here's some food laws for the people of Israel. These are things that you're not supposed to eat. And I can distinctly remember announcing to my sweet and precious grandmother, who could make a batch of biscuits and gravy in less than five minutes, and who fried everything known to man. Granny, I'm not eating pork anymore. The Bible says no more pork until I came to Acts chapter 11 and that joyous revelation from God that the food laws had been abolished and grandma was so happy to be able to feed me fried pork tenderloin and bacon all over again. It was that kind of, it was that kind of discovery, new and fresh and exciting every day. And what I want to share with you this morning is that after 20 years of studying the Bible from every conceivable perspective, every day is a fresh, new, exciting discovery. Not just the principles of God's Word, the commands that we ought to obey, the characteristic attributes of God's character, what we might know of ourselves, promises that we stand to claim in Jesus as the yes and amen to the promises of God. But the beauty and complexity with which the Bible speaks. I had an Old Testament professor who used to use the terminology of the intelligent design of the Bible. Sometimes the thought is these ancient simpletons piecing together under the inspiration of God some kind of rudimentary writing such as we have in the Bible. But there is greater depth and complexity in the 66 books of the Bible than we can comprehend with our whole imagination. The means of God communicating to us often in subtle ways, but in powerful, profound ways, ways that move our heart, that change our life, that affect us in ways that we don't even understand. You have experienced as believers the very power of God's word, perhaps the strongest apologetic to God's word as God's word is the indelible imprint, the effect it has in each of our lives as we give ourselves to the reading of God's word. Some days you just don't feel it with regards to the reading of the Bible, right? And maybe you're a checklist person like me and you have to read it because OCD won't let you not check the box that day. Some days it's a little more than that that compels you to read God's word. You ever have a day when you just wake up and you're mad and you just want to be mad on that day? Is it just me? I think that's probably a shared experience, right? If not, I've just unveiled some inner psychology here that may be problematic for you. But I think we all have those days. We're just not ourselves. Things are just not right. You get up on the wrong side of the bed. And what I've experienced is that even coming to the Bible, even coming to the word of God, when I don't want to do it, 
when the circumstances that surround my reading of the scripture are not what they should be, even then, God does what I might not have wanted him to do. There's a sanctifying power that washes over us when we give ourselves to the reading of God's word, even when we may be resistant to the sanctifying effect of his word. God's word is powerful. You've experienced the way your day goes different when you give yourself to the reading of the Bible. There is an implicit power in the word of God passage that we've read this morning comes within the context of Paul encouraging a younger servant of Jesus. Timothy ministering to the saints in Ephesus is inclined toward timidity. He's not as forward, as brash as his older friend and apostle Paul. And Paul writes to him to, to encourage him that he not be intimidated even in his youthfulness, but that he persist in the preaching of the word. In fact, chapter 3 begins, but know this, difficult times will come in the last days. And Paul's basic message is that regardless of the circumstances around you, regardless of the difficulty of the day, persist in the preaching of the word. But in some ways, the foundation of that exhortation is found here in verses 13 and following. Paul says, evil people and imposters will become worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. Don't forget the investment of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which has been made in you. You know those who taught you. And you know that from childhood you have known the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ. In other words, Paul says, this is not a new message, Timothy. I'm just reminding of what you've been taught from your very childhood, that all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete Equipped for every good work. I want to focus for just a moment on those initial words in verse 16. All scripture is inspired by God. When we speak of the inspiration of the Bible, we do not mean inspiration in the broadest sense. In the sense in which you may read an inspirational quote, or you may watch an inspirational movie. You may hear a song that is inspiring or inspirational. You may observe an athletic performance on the field of play that you deem to be inspirational. But that is an altogether different thing than what we intend when we speak of the inspiration of God's Word. In fact, I think as believers, we ought to reserve the language of inspiration for the Bible and the Bible alone. Some years ago in the community where I was serving at the time, there was a church service. I referred to it as an alleged church service where the musician for the special music came to the podium and announced that although this was not traditionally understood to be a church song, he felt confident that the author was inspired by God. And then he proceeded to sing Simple Man by Leonard Skinnerd. Now, I know enough about Leonard Skinner to know they were inspired, but it was not by God. 
Intoxicated might have been the better terminology, but inspired is the language he used. When we say that the Bible is inspired by God, we don't mean that a person is in the broadest sense inspired and that his affections have been stirred up by some experience with God. We mean that God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, has laid hold of men of old in order that through the prism of their life, their personality, their historical context, and the circumstances of their audience, God has given us by inspiration, by the infallible work of his Holy Spirit, the word of God we have this morning in the 66 books of the Bible. We mean that God has taken hold of a human heart, Not to dictate to us a word, but again to speak through historical context in order to admonish and encourage the church as to his character and his standard for what is right. All scripture is inspired by God. Now flowing forth from this idea of God inspiring the scripture come a number of other concepts with regards to the scripture itself. God has inspired the scripture, and since, since God makes no mistakes, we may affirm that the Bible is without error. There are no mistakes, no issues, no problems in the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is without error. I hear a lot of playing fast and loose with language regarding the Bible in our day and age. This has been the case now for a hundred years. People will say things as subtle as the Bible contains God's word. No, the Bible is God's word, and there are light years of difference between those two affirmations. When talking about my commitment to the Bible, when talking about our collective commitment to the Bible, I will most often use the language of inerrancy over other alternate words because inerrancy is the most forceful terminology we can use to say that the Bible from the in the beginning of Genesis 1-1 to the amen of Revelation 22 is absolutely inerrantly God's word without any mixture of error whatsoever. God's word is God's Word, which practically means that we don't make exceptions, qualifications, nor do we apologize for the teaching of God's Word. There is a source of truth external to you found in the Word of God. Now, I want you to process that for just a moment because I think it's an important idea. There is a source of truth external to you that we find in God's Word. We, we, we're in a time where it's fairly common in the culture to hear possessive pronouns attached to truth. My truth, your truth, his truth, her truth. But I want you to know that there is a source of truth external to all of us which establishes for us truth. Truth as it is as it has been, and as it forever will be. This is afforded us in the Bible. Now, the knee-jerk to that might be to suspect that there'll be some who will push back at that, that there's a generation of people who are uncomfortable with propositional truth statements such as that. But I will tell you, as the product of one such generation, 
that I find incredible comfort. And there are many others who do likewise. Even among those who would push back at the truth claims of the Bible, there is a certain comfort that comes with knowing that parameters and boundaries have been established for us, that there is a baseline for truth to be found in a source external to us. We're not subject to the ever-changing winds and waves of social acceptance and cultural propriety. A standard has been established for us in God's Word. Practically, when we talk about the inerrancy of the Bible, this means for us that we don't qualify, editorialize, or apologize for the teaching of God's Word. Furthermore, the Bible is infallible. It's a word that's used technically to make reference to the unfailing power of God's Word. The Bible says that his word does not return void. That's more than just a slogan for the Gideons. God's word has powerful effect. It goes out and it has its effect, either in salvation or in judgment, in the sanctification of the church, in the hardening of the hearts of those who will resist the truth of God and suppress the message of the gospel. God's word will not return void. I think this is the most powerful apologetic for the Bible, that it affects change in us, that it does something to us. I can't quantify it. I can't necessarily define it, but I have experienced, and you too have experienced, the changing, transformative power of the reading and the preaching of God's Word does not return void. I came through seminary in a time when there was a lot of wrangling with how to address postmodernism. If you don't know what postmodernism is, don't worry. No one else does either. But in essence, postmodernism is the idea that you can't make hard and fast propositional truth claims. If I were to say this is my left hand, the postmodernist might respond, yeah, but from your perspective. Well, no, it's my left hand. It doesn't matter what the perspective, it is my left hand. It has always been my left hand. It will always be my left hand. But postmodernism would call that into question. And so we were sort of coached that we would rely heavily in evangelistic conversation on our personal testimony experiences. The rationale was the postmodernist will not debate your felt experience. Now, testimonies are not bad. We train and equip the members of our body to share their testimony. It can be an effective way of communicating the message of the gospel. It can be a persuasive way of inviting people to believe in Jesus. The sermon began this morning with my personal testimony of the influence of God's word in my life individually. That was a testimony. But there is something more powerful than your personal testimony. It is the word of God. I've experienced that when in conversation with those who would push back against the idea of a hard and fast absolute truth, that if you're ever able to get to the place of opening the book and simply turning the Bible to them and say, forget for a moment about what I think, about what you think, what does the book say? A source of truth external to you and to me. What really is truth? That old question that Pilate asked, what is truth? Press them to give themselves to the reading of the Bible. 
you might be astonished at the effect that the simple reading of the Bible has even on the most staunch of skeptics. The Bible is infallible, meaning it is effective in performing the work of salvation. I would note here just briefly that in addition to this, the Bible is all-sufficient. Paul closes the chapter by noting that the man of God is equipped for every good work through the teaching of the Scripture. I came here to be your pastor. The, The process sort of works where you put a committee together, and the committee does the work of interviewing and vetting and discerning through prayer the next pastor to lead your congregation. We met for the very first time in Grenada, Mississippi, in a hotel uh, conference room, and, uh, and I sat down, and to my left was Frank Peavy, who is now your executive pastor. And Frank looks gruff and tough, and he tries to put on this thing, but he really is just a teddy bear and as tender as anybody in our church. That's, that's Frank. But he does this thing in the beginning where he's, it's, it's, this, it's this game of, I'm going to see how, how bad I can make you think I think of you before I really let you know that I'm not as bad as you think I am, right? And I'm an hour and a half into this meeting, and I'm thinking, I don't know who this guy is, and, and I'm not sure if he hates me or he thinks I need to be the next pastor of Longview Point Church. I'm not sure which one. And he said at some point along the way, which just contributed to the mystery, right? All we need in response to a question about the future plans of the church, all we need is a Bible and a tree, which I'm kind of on board with, right? I like the proverb. I like the slogan, but I'm thinking, what does he mean? Does he think we we need to tear the building down? Do we need to, I mean, what is he planning to do? I'm trying to figure this dude out. Eventually, someone said he was from the Delta and I had him mastered after that, but it took me a little time. But the slogan stuck, and he's exactly right. All we really need is a Bible. The tree itself is optional. God has given us in his word all we need for training in righteousness, for the work of ministry, for growth in grace, and for kingdom advancement. I'll add to this list of descriptive terms for the Bible The Bible is imperishable. The scripture says that the grass withers and its flower fades away, but the word of our God remains forever. I'm not sure that we ever really give full thought to this concept. The fact that we have an English translation of the Bible in our hands is a remarkable feat of God's providence and sovereignty over all things. I mentioned a a few weeks ago our being in Israel in September and while in Jerusalem being taken to see the Dead Sea Scrolls. That probably doesn't seem like a big deal to a lot of people, and, and I noticed that most of our group was just sort of moving through quite quickly. And to be honest, we were kind of being shoved through a little bit. We'd gotten hurried in the tour and needed to move on to the next stop. I could not move away from this incredible scroll of Isaiah, 66 chapters of Isaiah. 
and I'm holding my Hebrew Bible in my hand and I'm looking at the scroll and I'm looking at my 21st century copy of the Hebrew Bible and I'm looking at a 2400 year old scroll found in a cave by goat farmers somewhere in the desert in northern Palestine and there are no discrepancies between the 2400 year old scroll and the 21st century copy in my hand. It was for me perhaps the most worshipful moment of the trip to imagine, to think of the ways that God has moved in human history to preserve his word that we might have this access. We speak such cavalier ways of these works of antiquity, Josephus and Philo and even secularly Aristotle and Homer. We talk like there's just volumes, libraries filled with these ancient versions of those works, but that could not be further from the truth. And yet for scant evidence of these other works of antiquity, which we assume, we presuppose, exist and are verifiable, there are scores, not hundreds, not thousands, but tens of thousands of scraps of manuscripts that attest to the consistency of God's word. Not over a hundred years, or five hundred years, or a thousand years, or two thousand years, but over the course of more than three thousand years, God has been actively at work preserving for our benefit His holy word. My first PhD seminar, my first day as a PhD student, my New Testament professor had just come off a one-year sabbatical, most of which was spent in Canada, but on the way back to New Orleans, he had passed through D.C. and gone to the Museum of the Bible in order to observe a new exhibit. It was a fragment of a manuscript from the Gospel of John that dated to 124 A.D., it was a fairly big deal in the scholarly world, given that most scholars had been contending for the last hundred or so years that the Gospel of John was at best a late second century writing, but in all likelihood a third or fourth century book. In other words, someone came along and wrote in John's name. Until the discovery of this little piece of papyrus was made, dating to 124 A.D., likely one copy removed from the hand of John the Apostle who wrote the Gospel of John under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit. And he could barely share the story of just looking through the glass at this little fragment of history through the tears that he shed, how moved he was at observing this testament to the grace of God who had worked providentially through the centuries to preserve for us this sacred book. Moses asked in Deuteronomy 4 of the people of Israel, who has heard the voice of God and lived to tell of it? And yet we've been given this remarkable access to the very words of God in 66 books of the Bible, which we've experienced to bear such tremendous power in our life. The Bible is imperishable. All scripture, Paul says, is given or inspired rather by God. And it's profitable, he says, for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete 
equipped for every good work. Just quickly note the list the Apostle Paul runs. The profitability of the Scripture pertains to teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. We find in the Bible instruction as to how to proceed and what to do under given situations. There is an approach to the Bible that says the Bible is our handbook for life. Frankly, I I hate the mantra. I think the Bible is more than that. I see that as a reduction on what the Bible actually is. The story of God and the sending forth of his only son. The metaphor is usually something like you have an owner's manual in your car. It's written by the creator of the car. And so we have something like a car's user manual in the Bible that helps us to know what to do under given circumstances. The Bible is so much more than that. But that does not negate the fact that we do find insight for living in the teaching of the Bible. We find instruction as to what is right, what is wrong, who is God, who are we, and what our next steps ought to be in the teaching of the Scripture. His Word is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. It's good for rebuking and correction, Paul says. I I have this problem when I read the Bible. This is my major struggle in my devotional life. I can read a passage, and just as soon as it begins to have devotional effect for me, I start building a sermon in my heart. It's, it's irresistible. Like, I start to see the passage and understand the passage, and I'm making a sermon outline instead of being sanctified by the teaching of the Bible. In other words, I struggle reading the Bible for others instead of reading the Bible for myself. I used to think that was a preacher-only issue, but I've come to understand it is a shared experience. We have this incredible ability when reading the Bible. We might hear a command that says, thou shalt not X, thou shalt rather Y. And our initial response to that is not to say, am I a violator of this X principle? Am I practicing Y? But to say, you know, I know somebody that does X all the time, and they won't ever do Y. And if they would, their life would be better, and mine would be too. We all struggle to see ourselves clearly in the mirror the Scripture affords us. We suppress the truth. We apply it to other people, disregard its impact or its influence in our own personal life. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sin, sick distorted way of coming to the Bible, but it is the way so many approach the Scripture. You've got to fight against it, and you've got to wrestle to remove the log from your own eye before you ever find the ability to aid your brother in the removal of the speck from his own. If you're not finding yourself rebuked often in your reading of the Bible, If you're not corrected frequently in your reading of the Bible, chances are you have given in to this satanic influence to read the Bible for everyone else and to somehow exempt yourself. Perhaps as often, if not more often, we come to the Bible hoping to have our thoughts, opinions, and convictions affirmed. It's often said that if your version of Jesus never offends your sensibilities, never brings about the conviction of sin, there's a stronger likelihood you're worshiping the Jesus of your imagination than the Jesus of the Bible. 
The same in principle can be said of our reading of the Bible. We ought to find here instruction and rebuke and correction. Paul says, furthermore, the Bible is profitable for training in righteousness. You are instructed in the Bible as to how to live a righteous life. You know, if I were a politician or a celebrity, God forbid, I would live today, if if I were a celebrity, December 31st, 2023, I would live in a constant state of fear that the normal, simple, easy statement of truth that I made 10 years ago, now made controversial by the swift shift of culture, would somehow be visited upon me and I would be canceled and lose everything that I have. I am so glad that you and I, as followers of Jesus, are not subject to what is socially acceptable or culturally appropriate, but that righteousness has been defined now and forevermore through the teaching of the Bible. God's word is profitable for training in righteousness. If you want to know what is right, if you want to know what is righteous, you don't have to listen to a party platform. You don't have to watch Dr. Phil. You don't have to tune in to some top 10 podcast. We find training for righteousness in the teaching of the Bible. There's one benefit, one way that the Bible is profitable that we sort of read through quickly back in verse number 15. Before Paul gets to the substance of his argument, the Bible is inspired by God and profitable for all manner of purpose. He just sort of says passingly, you know that from childhood you have known the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The scriptures offer wisdom for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. We don't love the Bible as an end in itself. We love the Bible for its ability to introduce us to the one who bled and died for us. It's the access to the character of God that brings me back to the Bible again and again and again and again. I mentioned as we began this morning that I'm a checklist guy and a goal setter for the year, and I have to meet those goals. It's impulsive. So I cheat on my reading goal every year. If I read it after Christmas, it goes on next year's list so that I'm ahead of the game. It makes me feel more accomplished early in the year. I've read some really good books in the last week. I'll probably never read any of them again. The Bible is unique And that there is always and forever for us more to find a well from which we stand to drink, living bread from which we stand to eat. The scriptures offer us wisdom and insight as to the person and work of Jesus and the salvation he offers us. I find that often in conversation, in an effort to share with someone the message of the gospel, you ask a question like, How does a person get to heaven? How does a person receive the forgiveness of their sin? How does a a person born again, how is a person saved? And in a majority of instances, the response will begin like this. 
well, I just think. Or, well, I just believe. And here's what I want you to see this morning. What you think, what I think, what you may believe in the depth of your heart, what I may believe in the depths of my heart is irrelevant to the truth of the Bible. The question is not what you think or what you believe. The question is what the book says. What does the source of truth external to you and to me say about the work of God's salvation? Well, I'll tell you. The book says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And it doesn't say it in that way that we tend to say something like that. We say, well, everyone makes mistakes. And it's sort of a way of absolving ourselves from responsibility because, after all, everyone makes mistakes. But that is not the tone of the apostle when he says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What he's saying is, all are damned as a result of having sinned and come short of the glory of God. It's not just that you have a problem. We all have a problem. And he goes on to say, the book says that the penalty for sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. There are two eternal destinies. There is heaven and there is hell. There is life and there is death. Death is received as the just punishment for our sin. And heaven is received as a gift by faith in Jesus Christ. Now prideful as we are, we're tempted to think, Yes, the gift is given to those who are not as bad as the worst of the worst. The book goes on to say that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's not taking into account what you have done or what you will do, what your potential might be or otherwise. But by an act of sheer grace, lavishing on us by faith the gift of his salvation. Well, how do we receive that great gift? The Bible says that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, here's what I want you to understand. That is not my explanation of the gospel. That is not Longview Point's explanation of the gospel. That is not the Baptist explanation of the gospel. That is not the Protestant explanation of the gospel. That's not the Christian version of how a person might be saved in exclusive to other alternatives. That is what the book, a source of truth external to me and to you, says about the message of salvation. You must repent of your sin and believe in the message of the gospel that God has raised Jesus from the dead confessing with your mouth that indeed he is Lord to receive this great gift. It's in the book. By faith, through your confession, you may know him today. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word, for its power, for the way you've preserved it down through history. God, thank you that you've privileged us with access to this holy word, your character, your son. Give us eyes to see, hearts to better discern, ears to hear the gentle work of your Holy Spirit. 
God, I pray that even within this congregation this morning, you might be pleased to give the gift of faith that some might believe. God, I pray that you would stir our hearts, turn our affections toward you. Lord, I pray that you would create in us, Lord, a firm resolve that we might receive on a daily basis in the year ahead, God, teaching, correction, rebuke, instruction, training in righteousness, that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.